Scientists tell us that over 100 billion people have lived in the course of human history. 100 billion people. A lot of folks. But out of all of the individuals that have lived, there is one name, there is one person that stands head and shoulders above everyone else. And although he was never formally educated, there have been more colleges and schools named after him than anybody else. Even though he was not a songwriter, more songs have been written about him than anybody else. He never wrote any books. And yet more books have been written about him than anybody else. He never traveled far from the place that he was born. And yet today, this morning, people all over the globe will be talking about his name. And I'm talking about the greatest name, the greatest person, the greatest individual that ever lived. His name is Jesus. There is nobody like him. There's nobody like Jesus. His name is Jesus. Kenneth Scott Latterette, the Yale University professor of the 20th century, described Christ like this. As the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. There is nobody like Christ. But while Jesus is the most influential Jesus might also be the most misunderstood person that ever lived. How many of you know there's a lot of Jesus confusion out there? There's a lot of people that believe a lot of different things about Jesus Christ. And I think it's important for us to clarify who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? Now, last week we kicked off this series called Tell Me Something Good from the book of Colossians. And the book of Colossians is good News. It is full of great, great things. And one of the things that the Apostle Paul, the writer of the letter to the Colossian church, talks about is the person of Jesus. He talks a little bit in the introductory verses that we looked at last week. He thanks God for the church. He prays for them. He, he offers a few salutations. And then right after that, he moves into... The main purpose of the letter, which is to lift up the name of Jesus, because the church at Colossae was having some Jesus confusion. And he wanted to clarify for them who Jesus really is. You know, people today are still confused about Jesus Christ. I moved into to my new house a couple of years ago. I met the Muslim neighbors next door and they found out I was a pastor and they said, pastor, we believe the same things that you believe. And I said, I really want to talk to you some more about that as I get to know you. <laughs> How many of you know there's a big difference between what Muslims believe about Jesus and what Christians believe about Jesus? We're not all the same. I made friends with some Mormon people. Some Mormons uh, showed up at church that I had met and been talking to. They showed up at church one Sunday, I almost fell over. I was like, the Mormons are here. You know, and it just so happened that I was preaching a message that was very much about Jesus. I mean, it was like I preach about Jesus every week, but it was like even more about Jesus. It was one of those messages. And I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting, you know, because if you don't know Mormon theology, Mormons believe that 
Jesus and the Father are not one. They, they believe that Jesus was born on the earth and that he came as a man, but he was not divine. And we'll get into that in a minute. But when they left, they said, Pastor, we agree with everything that you said, and we really appreciate the sermon. And I thought, well, that's so nice. And I gave them a high five, and I thought, you guys don't even know what you believe, you know? There's a lot of Jesus confusion. But Jesus is the greatest person, and there's nobody that could have so much relevance for our life like Christ. And I want to give you today four things that I believe are life changing truths about the person of Jesus Christ and how he can impact your life. And I had so many notes and I had so many points that I thought we would be here till next week if I went through all of it. So I'm going to give you four today and I'm going to give you the rest of the message next week. Amen. Because this is so good. Listen, tell me something good. We need to know more about Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons Jesus is so amazing is because he is the liberator of of our life. He is the liberator of our life. In other words, he sets me free. He sets me free. Now let's look together. Colossians 1:14. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this term redemption is a, is a word that, that the, the listeners in the first century would have been very acquainted with because the Roman Empire was dominated by slavery. In fact, historians tell us that in just the city of Rome, there were six million people that lived in Rome. Two million of them were slaves, one third of the population. And in the entire Roman Empire, 10 million slaves. The Romans had more slaves than almost any other civilization that has ever existed. And so this term redemption was one that was so powerful. Because everybody understood what it meant to be a slave and what it meant to be free. And in the ancient world, the only way you could be redeemed if you were in slavery is if somebody purchased you back. And so sometimes family members or relatives or loved ones or friends would save and save and save and save. Sometimes almost a lifetime to be able to pay the price to redeem that loved one back from slavery. And so this is the imagery that's being used here in Colossians 1.14. In him we have redemption. What he's saying is that Jesus paid the ransom. Jesus redeemed us. Jesus purchased us back and he did so by his precious blood. Sometimes people ask, well, why did Jesus Christ need to die on the cross? Because he was redeeming us. He was paying the penalty and the weight of sin he paid the debt so that you and I could be free, so we could be liberated. And what's so wonderful about being liberated in Christ is that we don't have to live under the dominion of sin. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you do still sin. We all sin. We're not perfect. But listen, you don't have to live under the control of sin. You have a power. You have a strength. You have a vitality where you can say no to sin. I believe this is one of the greatest things we can understand to break addictions. Some of us today are struggling with addictive behavior. I got some great news for you. Christ has liberated you. And yes, you may need some counsel and you may need some encouragement and love along the way. And absolutely you will. But listen, in Christ, you can be free. 
You can be free from the consequence of sin. You can be free from the control of sin. We have the power of the Holy Spirit within us that is setting us free. Liberation has taken place. Redemption has been defined as buying back, the buying back of something that was in the power of someone else. And that's what Christ did with us. The price was paid in his blood. Colossians uh, is not the only passage that talks about this. Uh, Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. In other words, like, if Christ has redeemed you, if, if the ransom has been paid, if the penalty has been paid, don't go back and be a slave. You've, you've been emancipated. You've been liberated. Don't go back to the old way you used to live. Can you imagine somebody that was a slave and, and, and the penalty was paid and they're like, you're free? And the slave looked around and said, well, you know what? I've been a slave my whole life. I don't want to be free. I want to be a slave. That's all I've ever known. When we live under the dominion of sin, that's exactly the way we respond. And we have a proclivity to go back to the old life. There's a, almost like a gravitational pull back to the old way we used to live. But in Christ, we have been liberated. We've been set free. And how so? Well, the forgiveness of sins. And that's why Jesus had to die. Uh, the forgiveness of sins. In the old covenant, every year, there were two goats that were taken. One was sacrificed on the altar for the sins of the people, the day of atonement. The other goat was also known as the scapegoat. And he was taken out into the wilderness and he was let go. He was let free. Symbolizing the freedom that the people were experiencing because their sins have been atoned. Well, now we know that Christ is our atonement. Jesus is the sacrifice. And now we are the scapegoat. We can be liberated and set free. We got to walk in that. Amen. We got to live in that today. We got to walk in that. You are free. Don't continue to walk in the old ways, in the old paths. You're free. Christ is my liberator. Why is Jesus amazing? He set me free. But there's also a second thing. Christ is not only my liberator, he's my reflector. He's my reflector. In Christ, we see the image of God. Now check it out. He is the image of the invisible God, verse 15 says. Look at that. He helps me see the heart of God. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. I mean, is there... Is there anybody that could ever reflect the heart and the person of God more than Christ? No. He says right here, he is the image of the invisible God. And some have pointed to this passage and said, well, see, he's just the image of God. He's not really God. But this word image is a word that can be translated one of two ways. In the language of the New Testament, it can be translated representation or it can be translated manifestation. And I think when you look in the context of Colossians 1, which I'm about to dig into a little bit more, we see that manifestation is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Jesus is the manifestation of God. In other words, if you want to see God, you look at the manifestation of Christ. You look at who he is. 
He's our reflector. He helps us see the heart of God. The J.B. Phillips translation of the New Testament translates this verse in a really cool way. He says, he is the visible expression of God. The visible expression of God. If you want to see God, see Jesus. Now, um, how do we know God? Not by religion, not by ritual, not by reason, not by regulation, but by revelation. Revelation of who Jesus Christ really is. That's how we know God, the revelation. I mean, just think about the person of Jesus. I mean, Jesus reflecting the heart of God. Jesus is, is gracious. Uh, he was gracious to the woman at the well. The woman at the well uh, had been married to a bunch of guys. She was living with a guy that she wasn't married to. Jesus was gracious to her. Uh, Jesus was, was forgiving. The first person Jesus wanted to see after the resurrection was who? It was Simon Peter, because Simon Peter had denied the Lord three times, and Jesus wanted to reinstate Peter. He's like, where's Peter? I'm resurrected. Get the grave clothes off. Where's Peter? Forgiveness, man. Kindness. Jesus was kind. He was saying, let the little children come to me. Jesus loved little kids. Jesus was kind. Jesus was patient. It reflects the heart of God. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation of God. Jesus was honest. Jesus said hard things to people like, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily and be my disciple. Go sell everything you have and come and follow me. I mean, Jesus was a truth teller. God is a truth teller. When you want to see God, look at the person of Jesus. Jesus is God's reflector. He's the manifestation of God. He's God in the flesh. Uh, my wife, Gina, is an identical twin sister. Some of you have met her sister. Her sister comes to church from time to time and people hug her and, you know, that was a great song, you know, high five her. We just love you. And her sister's so gracious. She's like, you know, identical twin sisters. I'm talking identical. When they grew up, they would, you know, they wore all the same clothes. They dated guys that were friends. They were college roommates. They studied the same thing at the university. They were both music teachers. I'm talking like you could not be, there's not two more identical people in the universe than my wife and her sister. It's amazing. And they were both music teachers at an elementary school um, shortly after college. We had only been married a short time at that, at that time. And Gina and, and her sister went to their principals and said, hey, April Fool's is coming up. We want to trade schools and we want to fool all the kids and the teachers. Is that cool? And the principal's like, that, that sounds like fun. So they were like, how are we going to do this? Because, you know, the kids think that we're somebody else and we don't know all the kids' names. They, it occurred to them as a teacher, you don't have to know the good kids' names. You just got to know the bad kids' names. <laughs> Seriously, you could be a great teacher if you just know who the bad kids are, you know? So they wrote down some notes like, you know, there's a little Johnny that sits on the front row and he's a second grader and he has the wiggles, you know. And then there's this little girl sits over here and she talks all the time. And, you know, and so they would they would like call the kids out. You know, it was great. They were looking at their list and they were calling the kids names. And even though they could tell something was a little bit off, they didn't really know. It was awesome. They made it through the entire day, the entire day without Anybody really understanding what was going on? I, I think you could say, if you have seen Gina, 
you have seen her identical sister, Ginger. And, and it's probably safe to say that if you have seen Ginger, you have seen Gina. This is what the apostle's talking about. If you want to know the father, look at the son. Jesus is the exact manifestation of God. That's why Jesus said in John 10 30, I and the father are one. We're not two different, two different individuals. We're, we're one. We're the same. Uh, in, in John 14, 9, Jesus said to them, I have been among you all this time without you knowing me. Philip, the one who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? They were asking, show us the father. And now here's the challenge for us. If you're in Christ, you are to reflect people to the Lord Jesus. I mean, people need to see something in our life that points them to this great God that we serve. Amen? Now, we're not the exact representation. We're not the exact manifestation of God. But we can reflect the love of Christ in us, the hope of glory, and, and, and when people see that we're merciful, when they see that we're gracious, and they see that we're loving, and they see that we're compassionate, what does it do? It gives glory to God. And people can see God in and through us. When somebody says, man, thank you so much for your blah, 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 you need to be like, man, I want to tell you, I serve a great God, and he lives in my life. We don't want people to just think, they are such nice people. We want people to think, they must serve an amazing God. They, they, they must know they, something crazy has gone on in those people's lives. I mean, they must worship Jesus. Jesus is our reflector. Jesus is our liberator. Jesus is also our creator. He's our creator. There's none like him. He designed me for a specific purpose. <clears throat> Notice he says here, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, some have thought this meant that Jesus was born and that he was not God. And if you just read this without reading the context of Colossians, you might come away with that conclusion. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was a created being, and I've debated them on this. And there's a lot of Jesus confusion. Was Jesus born or was, has Jesus always been? It's a big difference. It's a big difference. If Jesus was just a really enlightened guy, that's different from being the manifestation of God. That's different. Jesus is our creator. He's our creator. Uh, what, 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 what is this referring to? Well, the term firstborn can mean two things. It can mean chronology, like literally born first. I'm the firstborn. I'm the big brother in my family. Firstborn. It can mean that. But it can also mean something else. And I don't want you to miss this. It can also mean first position or rank or authority. So when the scriptures talk about the firstborn, many times it talks about position, not just chronology. And that's what's being expressed here. And I'll give you some more explanation in just a little bit in the following verse. But just stay with me for just a moment. In Psalm 89, 27, Solomon is referred to as the firstborn of King David, but he was actually a little brother. He had older siblings. He had older brothers. Why was Solomon referred to as the firstborn of King David? Because he was 
the highest in, in rank and authority. He becomes the successor of his father, David. He's the third king of Israel. Amen. So he was the greatest. Why do we, we talk about Solomon, not Absalom or the other brothers. We talk about Solomon. He was the greatest. He wasn't born first, but he was the greatest. Okay. In Revelation 1, 5, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn of the dead, not meaning that he was the first one to be resurrected. Others were resurrected first, but it was, it was that Jesus was the most important. Jesus' resurrection is more important than anybody else's. So this is what's being referred to. But if that's not good enough for you, I want you to look at verse 16 because the greatest way to understand scripture is to keep reading. Look at this right here. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now Jesus could not create all things if he was born at a subsequent time. I mean, Jesus could not have been the creator and things could not have been created through him and by him if he came on the scene 2,000 years ago. Doesn't work that way. Jesus has always been. And he says here in heaven and in earth. I mean, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. He created the spirit world. The stuff we don't see, Jesus created that. Jesus created the physical world. All that we see and behold. He created all of it. It was in and it was through him. Colossians 2.9 even clarifies this a little bit further in the following chapter. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Right? Right? I mean, if, if, if the fullness of God dwells bodily in Christ, then he, he's got to be God. He, he can't, can't be just, the, just the, the, the firstborn or an enlightened individual. It's a big difference. So here's the deal. If you were created by Jesus, you have a purpose. Did you know that? Your life has a purpose. God had a plan for you. God doesn't just create stuff just to make stuff up. God has a purpose in everything. Jesus has a purpose. He has a purpose for your life. Man, your life matters. You're not an accident. Rick Warren has a great quote. He says, there are no accidental children, just accidental parents. I mean, God has always had a plan. In the beginning. All of the millions and billions of people, God had a plan. God has a plan. God has a purpose for you. One of the purposes of your life is to know God, is to worship Him. There's a void in the soul and in the life of every individual. And God created us with that void so we could know Him. And if we're not worshiping and connecting with our Creator, we're living a substandard life. We need the Lord. We need God. We need worship. We need to, to, to connect with our creator. God's also given us a great purpose in mission. Everybody here is to live a life of mission. God wants you to use your time, talents, and gifts. The things that God's given you for purpose, for reason, for reaching people for telling people the great news about Jesus. And when our life is on mission, we feel the purposes and the plans and the calling of God. It's an awesome thing. 
It's an awesome thing. You were created with purpose. You were created by design. A couple of years ago, I went over to Park Meadows Mall. And when I walked in, they had these massive Lego structures of all of the great buildings and monuments of Washington, D.C. Maybe some of you saw this. I was astounded. Some were four or five feet tall and eight to ten feet long. How many of you know that's a lot of Legos? I looked down at the little panel that had been printed out that described each of the individual buildings. Some were 75,000 Legos. Others were up to 125,000 Legos. And you're talking to a guy that like gets frustrated on Christmas trying to put together 125 Legos, you know? Because if you get one notch off of a Lego, you can't just say, well, you know, it'll be fine. It'll be good. You'll mess the whole thing up. Everything, when you do Legos, everything's got to be super put together, doesn't it? And so I was really disturbed by this. I was like, who has the time and patience to put together 125,000 Legos? Is that even possible? Who could do that? So I went online and I got to share with you what I learned. They have these guys called Lego master builders. It's actually a profession <laughs> that build Legos. The starting salary is $37,500 to be a Lego builder. That's not bad to build some Legos, right? There's only 40 in the whole world. This is like, in the, this is like the Navy SEALs, okay? This is an elite, elite group. You got to send in a video resume. You, you got you to gotta show how you can build. Whatever you do to get the job, you become a Lego master builder. And then you have to get an MBA, which stands for a Master Building Academy. You get a certificate at the Master Building Academy where they like train you and teach you. And so these Lego Master Builders build these massive structures of Legos. And I just thought I would mention that because I know some of you are unemployed. You know, you, you may want to check that out. I don't know. I was looking at all those Legos, though, and I was thinking, you know, God is the builder of our lives. Every day of our life is another piece. And God had a plan. God had a blueprint. God had an instruction. And God began to fit together all of the Legos of your life to make you the person that he called you to be. See, you're not an accident. You may look back on the family you came from or some of the experiences you've had and you may think, what a waste. But I want you to know God has had a purpose in the beginning. You are not an accident. And every phase of your life, every struggle that you go through, every adversity, everything about your background, God will use it for his purposes and his glory. You are not a mistake. God wonderfully has fashioned each of our lives. And when I say God, I mean Christ too. The Lord and Christ. They're the same. They're the creator. God, God thought of you. I mean, how amazing is that? God knew the race you would be from. God knew the family that you would come from. God knew the personality or the lack thereof that you would have. He knew all of that. 
And he is wonderfully and masterfully building and putting the pieces together to make your life who he's called it to be. He is our creator. He's our creator. That's why every person matters to God. Verse 16 says, for everything was created by him in heaven and earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. But look at verse 17. It says, he is before all things and by him, all things hold together. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is our sustainer. Jesus is our sustainer. He's our sustainer. In fact, he's the one that holds our lives together. You wouldn't even be here today if it wasn't for Jesus. When your life is being pulled apart, guess what? Jesus is putting it back together. When you feel like you're about to lose your mind, he's the one that is sustaining you. Now, scientists tell us that the speed of light is 186,282 miles a second and that the sun is 93 million miles away from planet Earth. That's a long ways, isn't it? If you traveled at the speed of light, it would take eight and a half minutes to get to the sun. Scientists also tell us to travel around the earth at the speed of light, that you could do so seven and a half times per second. Seven and a half times. Seven and a half times. Seven and a half times. Pretty amazing. The nearest star is four and a half years away if you traveled at the speed of light, 27 trillion miles away. And there are one billion stars just in our galaxy. How many of you know the universe is a big place? It's a big place. And Jesus created all of it. There is nothing that is here today that was not created and thought of by Jesus. And people say, well, how did Jesus do it? I think Hebrews Chapter uh, 1, verse 3, gives us some insight. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. How about that? Jesus' word is what's sustaining the universe. Hey, planets, keep spinning. Black holes, I need you guys to chill. Right? Sun, I need you to shine. Jesus sustains the universe by his word. That's why we need the word of God in our life. That's why we can't be sustained spiritually if we don't have the word. Listen, if the word of Jesus can sustain the universe, how much more do you need God's word in your life? He's the one that holds it all together. He sustains us. He keeps us us together. Deism is the idea that God, God... created the universe and then went on vacation. Good luck, guys. See you guys later. I'm going to go chill over here, rest with the angels or something, you know. But listen, Jesus sustains all things. I mean, I want to stretch your mind today. How many of you believe this? Jesus is bigger than you thought he was. Jesus is big, man. He could create and he could sustain. Wow. He could do both. He could do both. 
Not just one, not just the other. Well, how does Jesus sustain me? He sustains me when I'm tempted. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There is no temptation that is uh, overtaken us except which is common to man. And God is faithful. And he will show you a way out so that you can endure. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Listen, when you feel like pulled in that direction of temptation, Jesus is the one that sustains you. You don't have to... You don't have to succumb to temptation. You can say no to temptation because of the power of Jesus. He sustains us when we're tempted. If we act on temptation, that's because of our choice, not because of his. Jesus sustains me when I'm tired. Sometimes we just get weary in the journey, don't we? Anybody here ever been tired? Anybody here came to church tired this morning? Sometimes, sometimes life will make you tired. Life will wear you out. It's in those moments we need to know that we are sustained by Jesus. The prophet Isaiah said, you will mount up with the wings of eagles. You will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not grow faint. And he's sustaining you. Some of you are in a crumbling marriage today. Man, if you'll turn your heart to Jesus, Jesus will sustain things that would not be sustained otherwise. He's the glue of the galaxy. He's the glue of your life. God sustains me when I'm tired. God, God also sustains me when I'm troubled. When I'm troubled. We need Jesus when we're troubled. Uh, the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 41, verse 10, Do not fear. I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Jesus sustains us. When we're troubled, when we're weary, when we're tired, when we're tempted, we need him. And he sustains us because he cares about us. Well, if Jesus is all that, if he's my liberator, he's my reflector, he's my creator, he's my sustainer, he deserves our lives. Let's don't be confused about Jesus. He's amazing. He's amazing. And we need him in our hearts and in our lives to get through what we're going through and to achieve every purpose that he has put before us. Let's bow together for a word of prayer.